The reading today is from Colossians 4, reading from verse 2 to the end of the book. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I thought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Taichikas will tell you about my activity. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in prayer, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Thank you so much, Megan. Friends, please do have a Bible open at that passage. This is our final message in our series in Paul's letter to the Colossians today. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ in us, the hope of glory. As Jesus is proclaimed now from your word, please give me all wisdom that we may be all warned and taught and ultimately be presented mature in Christ. 
This we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I hope you agree. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Try that again. <clears throat> I hope you agree. This has been such an encouraging letter to be studying and reading together. Uh, and the message of the letter is really very, very simple. It's stick with Jesus and let his lordship shape everything because that's the best. It's, it's summarized for us in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, which are really the key verses of the whole letter. Paul writes, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. You'd like a, a memory verse for the letter to the Colossians? That's a great one to commit to memory. But there's something that might have slipped out of view as we've been reading and being encouraged by this fantastic letter together. And that's the fact that Paul is still a chained prisoner while he writes this letter. Now, I think there are two reasons why Paul's incarceration is very important to keep in the background as we read this letter. And these two reasons are unpacked for us in the last chapter, which we're going to be looking at today. So there is an outline on your order of service to help you follow along. Excuse me, I'm baffling this morning. Well, this is the first thing, or first reason why we need to keep Paul's imprisonment in mind, and it's because circumstances aren't problems, they're opportunities. And you know, it is incredible to think about it that never once in this letter that Paul writes to the Colossians, never once does he ask them to pray for, or to advocate for, or to aid his release from prison. Do you notice that? Not once. In fact, I love the play on words he uses in verse 3 of chapter 4, where he prays for an open door. Now, remember, when Paul was in Philippi, he saw prison doors miraculously open, uh, and him and, and Silas were let out of prison. But this time, it's not the doors of the prison that he longs to see opened. It's the doors of people, doors of hearts, that he longs to see open, to hear the mystery of Christ, to hear the hope of the gospel, which he desires to declare. Paul also doesn't dwell on his imprisonment. You notice that? It's, it's, it's really in the background of the whole letter, as important as it is. The closest he gets to encouraging some sort of sympathy for his circumstances is there in verse 18, where he kind of poignantly takes over the pen from his scribe and clumsily writes in his own handwriting, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Now, it is worth remembering that being a prisoner in Roman times, uh, it could both be better and worse than what we think of as imprisonment today. And by better, I mean that the Romans didn't ever actually use imprisonment as a punishment in and of itself, the way we use it today. They firmly believed that indefinite imprisonment or imprisonment for life was actually inhumane. How about that for a thought? They also allowed for people of wealth or status or those who were awaiting trial to sometimes be placed under house arrest rather than being chained in a prison. And this is probably the case during Paul's imprisonment that he describes here in Colossians. But this means that Paul was chained permanently to a, a rostered Roman guard, but he was even free to receive visitors. 
So in some ways, I guess, perhaps better than uh, being stuck at Wacol or Woodford today. But by worse, I mean that because the Romans only used imprisonment for those who were awaiting trial or punishment, usually death, the clock was always ticking for the Roman prisoner. Every day the Roman prisoner woke up wondering if today is the day where I'm going to be called either to go to trial or to go to the block. Also, Roman prisoners were expected to supply their own meals, their own clothes, their own bedding. So nothing at at taxpayers' expense here. And this is probably the situation that Paul is in. He's deprived of liberty. He's deprived of privacy. But thankfully, he's still able to see his friends. But even so, Paul doesn't waste his days wishing he was somewhere else. The way Paul handles his imprisonment really shows us that in Christ, our circumstances are not problems, they're they're opportunities. So yes, Paul can't go around preaching the gospel where it has not been heard. But every few hours, he gets a new Roman guard to come and get chains of him, who he gets to talk to for however long he's rusted on for. You can tell him about the good news of Jesus, the hope he has in him, whether he lives or dies. Really, uh, even though he's the captive, he has a captive audience. Uh, In Philippians, Paul told the church, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard that my imprisonment is for Christ. Never want to waste an opportunity as Paul. And of course, when he faces the courts in Acts, when he goes to trial, He uses his defense statements as opportunities to declare the gospel to kings and governors. And yes, Paul can't visit the churches that he's he's planted to proclaim God's words and build them up in the gospel. But think of how many of the New Testament letters were written while Paul sat in a prison cell, where he could take the time to think over carefully what these believers needed to hear, at least Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. And yes, Paul can't be there in person to encourage the Christians in Ephesus or in Philippi or in in Colossae. But he can send faithful workers like Tychicus, like Onesimus, like Mark, to go and do the same work he would have done among them. He can equip them and send them. And finally, Paul uses his time inside to pray. In between eating and sleeping, writing letters, chatting to his guards about Jesus, hearing reports about the spread of the gospel across the world from from those who visit him, Paul spends dedicated and deliberate time in prayer, thanking God for what he's doing in the gospel and praying that he would keep doing it more and more. Now, I'm confident that if you or I were thrown in jail for proclaiming Christ, pretty high up on our list of priorities would be getting out. But how often do we find ourselves in far less dangerous and far less difficult circumstances uh, than than a Roman prison? And we still believe that we we need to be somewhere else before we'll see God at work in us and around us. If only I was in a less stressful job, then I'd be able to live better for Jesus. If If only my church did things more the way I think they should be done, then we'd see God at work. If only my family wasn't so demanding, then I'd, I'd be able to work at sharing the gospel with my friends and colleagues at work. 
A wise man once said that, yes, the grass might look greener on the other side, but you've still got to mow it. And if your lawn looks anything like mine at the moment, that's a scary prospect. But instead, we should really consider the opportunities that God has given us in our present circumstances to see him at work, wherever that may be. Or don't we believe that God is sovereign over everything? So yes, you might be in a stressful job, but rather than wishing you were somewhere else, could you rather show your workmates how a follower of Jesus handles stress? You might have a demanding family, but rather than wishing you were somewhere else to proclaim the gospel, how could you meet your family's needs with the gospel? And yes, I'm sure we don't get everything right as a church. Uh, there are probably as many ideas here on how, how to do ministry better as there are people in the room. But do we have to get everything right before God can work here? And, and to even use you in that work? In fact, maybe his plan to show you his work in action is sitting right next to you this morning. Now, of course, this isn't easy to do in difficult circumstances. Perhaps all you can do is just to keep swimming, and perhaps the vague hope of someday something better is what's keeping you going. But thankfully, Paul also shows us the key here for bringing our opportunities for the gospel into focus in our present circumstances. And that key, quite simply, is prayer. Prayer. In chapter two, uh, sorry, chapter four, verse two, he encourages us towards ongoing, persevering prayer that is both watchful and thankful. I think we tend to give up on prayer too easily. If God doesn't answer the prayer we prayed today. Will we pray it again tomorrow? Actually, continuing steadfastly in prayer does two things. The one thing it does is it proves what we actually believe about God's ability to answer our prayers. And secondly, it changes us to depend more and more on God's power to answer our prayers. Paul says being watchful and thankful must also shape the character of our prayers. Watchful simply means being awake to what is happening in the world around us, in ourselves, in the lives of others, being alert but it goes hand in hand with thankfulness. It's not just being aware, as if you know, awareness is what we need. It goes hand in hand with thankfulness. Thankfulness is this like melodic motif that keeps running through the letter in so many places. So we're not just alert to what's going on, what we ought to be praying about. We're also alert to what God is doing, how the gospel is at work. Of course, these themselves are opportunities to give the credit and, uh, and to God and, and content ourselves that he is surely working to bring about his plans and purposes for his glory uh, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. It brings to mind that old Sunday school song, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. So yes, being watchful and thankful, praying constantly, steadfastly, that God would show us what he would have us do. In his circumstances, even in prison, Paul wants prayer for clarity of speech. That when he has opportunities to talk about Jesus with guards or with a governor, that he won't waste words. 
Will we pray for the circumstances we're in, asking God to show us where he wants us to serve him, at work, at school, at uni, or at home, and to equip us with what we need to serve him there? Perhaps verse 5 could form the basis of these prayers, asking for wisdom with how we relate to the people in our lives who don't yet know Jesus. Asking for wisdom to use the time we have in the best way possible. Asking for the right words, thoughtful words, gospel-seasoned words to answer the questions we're asked in ways that point unmistakably to the Lord Jesus. Friends, our circumstances are not problems. Not to us and certainly not to the Lord. Wherever you are in your life, God has placed you there in his wisdom. Even if it's somewhere you have chosen to be, even if it's somewhere difficult, even if it's somewhere you've not necessarily chosen to be. And he has given you opportunities there to bring him glory, to work for the gospel, to see him at work. Will you pray for the grace and wisdom to use those opportunities well and that God would equip you for those opportunities? Well, as we move a little bit deeper into this very personal part of the letter, it feels a little bit like reading someone else's mail, doesn't it? Um, We come across this list of names. And often I think these sorts of name lists in the Bible fill us with dread or boredom or a combination of both. Uh, But I think Megan did a great job a moment ago of... uh, Where is Megan? There's somewhere. Thank you, Megan. You did a great job a moment ago of reading all those names for us. Thank you. But it's worth thinking about this list of 10 names actually as 10 people who sought the opportunities God had given them in their circumstances to serve the gospel. I think that's why Paul puts them here, not just to be polite or to you know, share relationship, but to show us what it looks like to seek God in all our circumstances. And as we look at that, as we look at these names, they remind us of something that's very crucial to the ministry of the gospel. And that's the simple fact that it actually takes a team to change the world. Paul's jail time, apart from showing us that circumstances are opportunities, not problems, it also shows us something very important about the way that God works in the gospel. Because notice that although Paul is in jail, along with Aristarchus, by the sounds of things, the gospel hasn't ground to a halt. Do you notice that? In chapter 1, Paul told us that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. And it's not just Paul's work doing that. In fact, Paul had never been to Colossae. Um, The best explanation we have from piecing together the, the evidence in the Bible is that It was probably Epaphras, who Paul mentions here and in chapter 1, who heard Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus on the the western coast of Asia, and who heard the gospel, became a Christian, thought this was fantastic, went back east to the Lycus Valley and preached the gospel in Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae, and founded the churches there. So despite Paul's gifting, despite his contribution, despite his ministry, Despite even his authority, given by Jesus, the gospel's impact doesn't depend on him. And nor should it. 
Because Jesus, not Paul, is the one in whom all things hold together. From chapter 1, verse 17. And friends, this is the pattern of the gospel. Diverse teams of ordinary people used by God as fellow workers in different ways so that as Christ is proclaimed, people are brought into his kingdom and built up for maturity in him. And for those being baptized today, you guys are signing up to be part of that team. Can I add a warning here, though? Be very careful of ministries that are built around gifting personality or prominence of one person. In the last few years, and even very recently, it was touched on in our prayers. We've seen the tragic failures and falls of so many prominent leaders who had apparently thriving ministries built around them. I question whether one man or one woman, for that matter, is meant to shoulder such pressure. How can it possibly be good for someone's godliness? And should we then be surprised when people under such pressure end up abusing their authority, end up abusing the people around them, or develop sinful coping habits which lead to more sin? It's not to excuse the sin, but should it surprise us? I don't think this is what the Bible teaches, that we should have that we should celebritize the servants of the gospel and pressure them to the point where they crack. It's not the pattern of Scripture. Instead, the pattern we see in Scripture is of every Christian taking their place in the work of the gospel. As we saw back in chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Of course, some are called to lead, others are called to follow, but all are called to serve the gospel together. That means there's, there's no get-out-of-jail-free card for anyone in this room today. We're all gospel servants together. Now, coming back to this list of names, it's, it's a useful exercise to see where else these 10 pop up in the New Testament. Um, our Grace Community Groups are going to do some of that work during the week as they meet, uh, so we're not going to do it this morning. But instead, I'd like to show you 10 things about this team of fellow workers that show us how God works in fulfilling his gospel purposes in the world. Now, 10 things might sound ambitious, but bear with me. And the first thing to notice is that all of them are fellow workers or fellow servants. Uh, there's a phrase Paul keeps using to describe these people here uh, and in the companion letter Philemon, where he calls them fellow workers or fellow servants. Paul has fellowship with them. And just to note, this is not fellowship like going out for morning tea after the service. This is probably better described as partnership. Working together for a common cause, whether they were apostles or elders or simply uh, committed servants of Jesus who came from local, local churches like Colossae or Laodicea. They were united in the priority of the gospel. And of course, this also shows us that Paul never confined the work of the gospel to his own personal ministry. The work by nature was a shared work. Remember that even Jesus had 12 apostles. Gospel ministry happens in relationship. And Colossians shows us a deep and personal relationship between Paul and 
the members of his ministry team and the Colossian church. And it's work that shares not just the work, but also the joys and struggles of the work, even to the point where he, sa- he talks about them sharing chains together. Aristarchus is Paul's fellow prisoner, and perhaps others in this list are as well. Oh, and by work, Paul actually does mean that it takes effort. It doesn't just happen by sitting on a church chair on a Sunday morning. Remember Paul's toil back in chapter 1 with energy supplied by God. Seeing people brought into Christ's kingdom through the gospel and built up in that kingdom is hard work. It's hard work, especially in prayer and proclamation of God's word. But it's work that works and work that is worth it because God is behind it. So that's number one. They are fellow workers. Secondly, Paul trusts them. Do you notice that? Paul doesn't need to micromanage his ministry team or exercise, you know, authority abuse over them. He trusts Tychicus. He even trusts Onesimus, who was a former slave, a former thief, who's now a Christian. He trusts them to use their own initiative and perspective to report on Paul's situation what's going on with the gospel, and to encourage the believers at Colossae. And I suspect he trusts them ultimately because he trusts the Lord to do the Lord's work. Number three, they span the full range of society. Gospel work is not elitist. It does not depend on education or status. You had everyone from Onesimus in verse 9 who was a slave, to Luke, an educated doctor, in verse 14, to Nympha, uh, a woman who had a home large enough for the church to meet in, in Laodicea, verse 15. Anyone can be involved in this work. Number four, the team also shows a healthy diversity. It was a mix of Jew and Gentile. There were people from all over the Roman Empire, Asians, Macedonians, and Judeans. A woman called Nympha is mentioned alongside men involved together in the work of the gospel. This is not diversity for diversity's sake like we see in society today, but it shows that the the work of the gospel must conform to scripture, not to culture. And though we are different and we have different roles to play, The gospel is benefited from the diversity of people it saves. Number five, they're not perfect. Paul clearly has a high regard for everyone he names on this list. He has a love for them. He values their contribution. But two names stand out if we know our New Testament well. First is Mark in verse 10. Mark actually deserted Paul on one of his earlier mission trips, and this led to a falling out between Paul and Barnabas, two you know, prominent evangelists in the early church. But thankfully, by the time Paul wrote Colossians, this seems to have been worked out, which is why Paul tells them specifically to welcome Mark. Also, Demas, in verse 14, who's mentioned in the same breath as Luke, and is described in Philemon 24 as a fellow worker, He sadly deserted Paul later and gave up on the gospel by the time we read 2 Timothy chapter 4 because Paul said he was in love with this present world. Could Paul have known when he he invited him to serve alongside him? I don't know. 
but it does remind us that this team's not perfect. But even so, despite flaws and failures, God uses them to proclaim Christ and take the gospel to the world. Number six, they are ordinary. It's, it's great to actually remember how ordinary most of these people are. A great example of this, I think, a particular example, is Jesus called justice in verse 11. It seems to have been common practice in, in the first century, even though Jesus was a very common name uh, for Christians to actually change their name to avoid confusion. So verse 11, what do we know about justice? Well, we know he was with Paul and brought Paul comfort. We know he was Jewish. And he, was sent a, he also sent a greeting to the Colossian Christians. In fact, he's described exactly the same way as Aristarchus and Mark. But at least we know a bit more about those guys from Acts and elsewhere. But Jesus' justice, Colossians chapter 4, verse 11, is it. We know nothing else about him, nothing that stands out about him. It must be said, Nympha in verse 14, she's also uh, only mentioned here, but at least we're told that she has a house where the church meets. But Jesus' justice, we know nothing else. There's no other reference to him in the whole Bible. And yet, Paul valued him, and we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. God uses ordinary people for gospel ends. There's hope for all of us, friends. Number seven, they've got different gifts. Notice how there's only one Paul on the list, the gifted theologian and gospel preacher. And let's not forget Timothy as well, the the pastor in training and co-author of this letter from chapter one. Epaphras in verse 12, he seems to have been a gifted evangelist who may well have been the first to take the gospel to the three cities of the Lycus Valley. But now his ministry seems to have pivoted actually to support work and committed in serious prayer. And he's, he's clearly gifted at both, but it's perhaps a reminder that we are sometimes called to serve differently in different seasons. Luke and Mark both ended up writing gospels. And by the way, it's incredible to think that the men who wrote the majority of the New Testament We're actively involved in the work of the gospel right here. Isn't that amazing? Nympha had resources she could use for the gospel. Archippus, in verse 17, had something, but he just needed encouragement to use it. The work of the gospel needs different people with different gifts. That's how God's designed things. Number eight, they come from different church backgrounds. So some of Paul's gospel ministry team were Jewish and they had a lifelong familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures. Others were Gentiles, saved out of Roman paganism. But neither was more qualified than the other to serve the gospel and be part of this ministry team. And also, remember, their unity in Christ in a society which would have seen their friendship even as weird, it's a testimony to how the gospel reconciles people to each other and to God. So they come from different church backgrounds. Number nine, they encouraged Paul too. There's nothing in this gospel ministry of it being purely a top-down thing. The ministry didn't only work in one direction as though Paul was some sort of CEO calling the shots and having all his apprentices do all the heavy lifting. Paul needed and valued their ministry to him as well. He was encouraged when their ministries flourished, verse 13. 
He loved them. They were beloved brothers, verse 7. And they were a comfort to him as well in his imprisonment, verse 11. And finally, I I was struggling to keep my promise of finding 10 things to say about this team of gospel workers, but I think I've managed. And the last point is perhaps the most obvious and the reason that they're in the Bible in the first place. All of these people were known first and foremost for their gospel priorities, for their service to the gospel. It was worth mentioning because their gospel priority was obvious and it mattered. That's why they're in the Bible. So as we come to the end of this letter this morning, we no longer have to remember Paul's chains, as one commentator said, because they've long since rusted away. But what should we remember? I think this morning's passage encourages us to ask many questions of ourselves, of what we're doing with the gospel, of our relationship with Christ, of where we fit in God's gospel plan for his church and for the world in Christ. But perhaps the message of this last chapter is best and most simply summarized like this, that we ought to pray constantly, alert and grateful that God would equip us and show us the opportunities he's given us to serve the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ wherever he has placed us now in partnership with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So perhaps the enigmatic encouragement to Archippus is just what we need to hear as we finish this letter. See that you fulfill the ministry you have received from Christ. Amen. Why don't we pray? Our gracious Father, we thank you for Grace Christian Church Budrum, for our faith in Christ Jesus and of the love we have for your people because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. We thank you that we've heard the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to us as indeed in the whole world it still bears fruit and is increasing. As it also does among us since the day we heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as we learned it from faithful fellow servants of the gospel who have gone before. Please fill us with a knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus our Lord fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of him, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to you, our Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We thank you for delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As we receive Jesus, we pray that you'd, that you'd strengthen us by your spirit to walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as we were taught, always being full of thankfulness to you. Amen. Well, friends, it's been great to be studying the letter to the Colossians with you this term. I found it uh, challenging and encouraging. I hope you have too. We're kind of next week going to have a bit of a post-credits uh, sequence. Uh, because the letter to Philemon, a little one-page letter in the New Testament, really goes with this letter. Uh, and Bob Burnett is going to be opening that up to us next week. 
um, if I remember right, it's called a uh, what Gospel Subverts Society, a case study. So I hope you can join us for that as well next week.